Exodus 21 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. Uh, this is God's word. So welcome everyone to RUF. Um, like we say every week at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And we're going to be talking about grace a lot tonight. And basically what grace means, it just means God's uh, kindness, his favor. Um, the word is associated in the, both the Old and the New Testament with uh, like gift language. And we believe that the Christian life is all about a gift. It's all about the gift that God has given us in Jesus. Uh, the Christian life from start to finish is based on the gift of Jesus. And this semester, we've been going through a series in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, uh, called Knowing God. We've been saying that the Exodus answers two, or the book of Exodus answers two questions. Uh, who is God and who are we in relation to him? So it shows us who God is and who we're called to be in response. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us, and we can go ahead and jump in. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity um, to get together and to hear your word. Um, Lord, I do pray that you would uh, help us uh, to have attentive hearts uh, and minds. Lord, will you um, just open our eyes and uh, help us to see you as you are? Uh, we need your help, Lord. Um, so often uh, when we hear your word, we want to cover our ears uh, from time to time. So other times we're really uh, eager to hear it. So Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you would meet us um, where we are and take us where we need to go. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I don't know if you've heard uh, kind of this popular American origin story. Uh, it goes like this. The year is 1787. Uh, the Constitutional Convention is happening at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And there's a whole bunch of people gathered outside of Independence Hall because they're uncertain what is this new country going to look like. And the story kind of goes that one woman was outside Independence Hall and she saw Ben Franklin leaving. And she approached him and asked, uh, Mr. Franklin, what sort of government have you given us? And he responded famously, a republic if you can keep it. 
a republic if you can keep it. Uh, you see, the Constitution uh, that they were coming up with at this Constitutional Convention, it spelled out the government of the United States of America. Uh, it spelled out what sort of people they were going to be. Uh, it spelled out what sort of values this country was going to have. How will they live, or how will we live our common life together? That's what a constitution does. It tells us what sort of people we're going to be. And our passage tonight is addressing that same question. What sort of people are we going to be? In our passage tonight, God is speaking uh, directly to the entire nation of Israel from Mount Sinai. Uh, So if you've been with us this semester, you remember at the beginning of Exodus, the people of Israel are in Egypt. Uh, They are enslaved. They uh, cry out to the Lord, and the Lord rescues them uh, in this miraculous fashion. He raises up Moses, who kind of represents God to the people, represents God to Pharaoh. There's this crazy showdown between uh, Pharaoh and God, these ten plagues. Uh, Moses leads the people out of Israel. Last week we saw uh, the Red Sea is divided. The people walk through. God has shown himself to be a king who who cares about his people. And then right before our passage, uh, the people arrive at Mount Sinai, and God kind of tells Moses his intention for this nation that he has rescued out of slavery. He says that he wants Israel to be his treasured possession. He wants Israel to be before him as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation. This is a high calling for a people who have just spent 400 years in slavery. And so what we have in our passage tonight, it's where God is spelling out exactly what that means. What does it mean that Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests? What does it mean that they're going to be his treasured possession? Our passage tonight is God telling his people what sort of people they're supposed to be. So that's just going to be our question as we look at this passage tonight. What sort of people are we supposed to be? We're going to see two answers as we go. Uh, First, we're to be people who are rooted in grace. And second, we're to be people who are changed by grace. So rooted in grace and changed by grace. So first off, we're to be people who are rooted in grace. Uh, If you would look with me to the first two verses there. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So remember, this is kind of like the the constitutional, like the foundation of this nation of Israel. This is where God is kind of putting on their radar who they're supposed to be. And the first thing he says is a statement about who he is and what he's done for them. Who he is and what he's done for them. So who is he? Who does God reveal himself to be? He says in the beginning of this passage, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Uh, If you remember from earlier in this semester, we looked at Exodus 3, uh, where Moses encounters God in the burning bush. Uh, And in that story, we we notice that God reveals himself as one who is both holy and committed to his people. He reveals himself as one who is, on the one hand, powerful and perfect, but yet on another hand, he's gentle and committed to his people. And he reveals himself by his personal name, the Lord, Yahweh. It's his covenant name. He gives Israel intimate access to himself. So he reminds them right at the beginning that he has shown himself to Israel. But he doesn't stop there. He tells them what he has done for them. 
He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Uh, See, the Lord, kind of in shorthand, he's been faithful to his promises. Uh, If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, in Genesis, God makes makes a promise to Abraham. And he says that he's going to bless the nations through him. He's going to bless him so that he will be a blessing. He also says to Abraham that uh, his descendants are going to be in Egypt, and they're going to suffer for 400 years, and he's going to rescue them. And then God reiterates those promises again to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus 6. See, God has been faithful to his promise, and he reminds the people of that here. He's been so faithful and delivered them in miraculous fashion through these 10 plagues, through splitting the Red Sea in two. He has shown himself to be the the true king that they long for. We saw last week, God is the one with power. He's the one who cares about their pain. He's the one who will fight for them. So the first thing that God does in this kind of constitution, this foundational document, is to remind them of his grace towards them. He reminds them of his grace. And grace is a word that we use in RUF a lot. Um, And it's a word that's actually all over the Bible. Um, And in the Old Testament, grace is a word uh, pronounced chen. Got a nice little ch sound there, chen. And in the New Testament, it's a word, charis. And both of these just mean something similar like gift, favor, kindness. God is pointing his people back to his giftedness, his favor, his kindness. At the beginning of this section that we commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments, this is the first thing that God wants them to see. So why, if God's trying to tell them what sort of people are they supposed to be, why would he point them backwards to what he's done for them? Why would he do that? Uh, have any of you seen the, uh, the movie Fifty First Dates? Yeah? Okay. I wasn't sure. It's, it's like it came out in 2004. So I was like, man, this is, this is a toss-up as to whether people have seen it. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, it's an Adam Sandler movie. It's one of the last good Adam Sandler movies, in my opinion which is really sad, rip Adam Sandler's acting career. Um, But Adam Sandler plays a guy named Henry Roth, who is uh, kind of like an animal veterinarian at an aquarium. He works with seals, lives in Hawaii. Uh, And the love interest there is Drew Barrymore, uh, who plays a girl named Lucy Whitmore. Uh, And the backstory of this is that Lucy was in a car accident that gives her kind of like a daily short-term memory loss. So she goes to bed each night, wakes up, and she thinks that it's the same day that she had this traumatic accident. And Henry just randomly runs into her without knowing that she has this kind of traumatic injury. Uh, and he, he runs into her and um, kind of hits it off. And then she says, I'd like to see you again tomorrow. And he's like, great. So he shows up again at the same place and she acts like she doesn't know him. And he's really confused. And he asks around a little bit and he finds out what the deal is, that she has amnesia, like she can't remember you. But then eventually he, he just starts finding a way to continually show up in her life, right? And they have, you know, the namesake of the movie, 50 First Dates. And then finally he gets like accepted into her life and he comes up with this plan that he's going to, he starts this, uh, this kind of cassette tape thing. Um, it's a movie that's called Good Morning Lucy that uh, she's going to watch every single morning that essentially tells her about this uh, accident that she was in and then reminds her of the story of her life. 
and tells her about uh, their dating relationship. And every morning she watches this and it's really emotional and heavy, but she's able to continue on in relationship with him. They're able to grow together. What I want us to see tonight is that we are not unlike Lucy here. We forget how gracious God actually is. And see, at the beginning of the law, at the beginning of this is what you're supposed to do, God thought it was important to remind us who he is and who we are in response to him. You see, in order for the relationship to grow, we have to have a sense of who we are because we suffer from spiritual amnesia. We forget. Uh, The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said it like this. He said, it is an urgent necessity that the preaching of the gospel continue among us, that we may hear and retain it. Otherwise, we would soon forget our Lord. We would soon forget. You see, the gospel proclaims that we are rooted in grace, that salvation comes to us as a gift, that there's nothing that we can do to mess it up, that, that, that it's not the result of any inherent goodness in us, any sort of accomplishment that we may have done. From start to finish, the Christian life is a gift of God. So we need to be rooted in grace, but we've just noted that we suffer from spiritual amnesia. We forget. What sort of things get in the way of this? What sort of things get in the way of us being rooted in grace? Uh, just This is not exhaustive, but three things kind of came to mind. Uh, the first one is our culture. Our culture. Um, I want to be very specific. I'm not going to make any big picture things. I'm going to be very specific to UNL. Uh, so I was in a building this week of a certain um, college that will remain nameless. Uh, there was an announcement uh, on the board that just kept coming by a couple times, and it was for this thing called the Success Bell. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, where if you the, the idea is if you get a job or an internship or get accepted to grad school, you can go to this office and ring the Success Bell to let everyone know that you have made this major accomplishment. Right. And I think like celebrating our accomplishments is not a bad thing. But think about what that's communicating. Right. Success means accomplishments. And so you can't be OK with yourself if you're not a success, if you're not hashtag Husker hired. Right. That's like our, the, cult, the very culture around us doesn't want us to be OK with not contributing to our own lives. It doesn't want us to be OK with living in life as a gift. So our culture is against us on this, I think, but our own hearts are also against this. If you're anything like me, I mean, like, the fact that the Christian life is from start to finish a gift is really frustrating at times. Like, I want to have some sort of ownership of my salvation. I want to be good enough. Uh, Kind of a funny little story that gets at this. Uh, If you've seen The Office, um, Andy and Dwight have this kind of interaction where Dwight is trying to get everybody to owe him one. So he can get Jim fired. And so he goes and gets bagels and brings them to everybody. um, Kind of as a like, thanks, you owe me one. And so he brings a bagel to Andy. And Andy just like cannot handle the idea of owing someone something. So they get in like this politeness battle where like Andy will straighten up his tie, polishes, you know, polishes suitcase, all that sort of stuff. Isn't that so relatable? Like we hate being indebted to anyone. 
I did not like being indebted. It's, there's something so uncomfortable about like not being able to take ownership of where you are in life. And then finally, and I think this is one that we don't talk about, and it's probably going to sound weird me talking about it, but there is such a thing as an enemy of our souls. There is such a thing as Satan. And Satan doesn't want us to be comfortable in our salvation. You see, Satan wants nothing more for you than to be convinced that your worth is in your works, that your worth is in your own contribution. Why? Because he knows, and I think we know deep down, our works will never be enough. Our contribution will never be enough. You see, he wants to keep us rooted in shame, drowning in shame. So there's a lot of things against us staying rooted in grace. You might be thinking, well, is it hopeless? I want to give just like a very practical, if you want to be rooted in grace, here's what a life that's rooted in grace might look like for you as a college student. I would say, first off, come to RUF. Um, and just so you know, I'm not being biased, come to a campus ministry. Like be rooted in some sort of community of grace that is going to preach the gospel to you. RUF is the one that I know the best because I'm the one doing it each week. <laughs> But come to a campus ministry. But even more than that, I would say get rooted in a local church. Get rooted in a local church. The church is the institution that God has given us to keep us rooted in grace. RUF is an arm of the church. We're not the church itself. You need the local church. The local church is where you're going to encounter what uh, we call the ordinary means of grace, which are the word, the sacraments, and prayer. That's where you learn to do those things. You hear the word proclaimed, you partake in the Lord's Supper, and you pray together. These are things that God has given us to strengthen our faith. These are things that God has given us to keep us rooted in grace. And if we just go about the Christian life alone, we're not going to be rooted. It's not going to happen. All right, so we're to be people who are rooted in grace. But second, we're also to be people who are changed by grace changed by grace. So the second half of this passage contains uh, the Ten Commandments, which I think probably everybody is familiar with. Uh, They're everywhere in culture. Um, The word Ten Commandments is not in the Old Testament, though. Uh, That's just kind of how we refer to them. In the Old Testament, they're referred to as the Ten Words. And then in the New Testament, that's kind of picked up. Uh, They're referred to as the Decalogue which is just Greek for 10 words, but that's neither here nor there. That's for free. Um, But when you hear uh, grace and commandment, like how does that association work in your mind? Uh, If I were to ask you to do like a word association with grace, my guess is that like commandment, law, or rule would not be in the top 50, right? When we think grace, we think freedom, When we think commandment, we think like restriction. And I think the reason we think that is probably because of our culture. Like, I feel that. Uh, Maybe you've heard the great uh, philosopher, poet, theologian, Elsa, um, who says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, right? Let it go. Like, we believe that on some deep level. Like, there's something appealing about living in a world where there's no right or wrong. There's no rules. And if you're here and you're thinking that, I just want to gently push back Um, because this sort of thinking actually only works in a society where we assume 
a common level of human decency. Uh, if you're not living in a society that has a common level of human decency, this sort of no right, no wrong is horrifying. Uh, there's actually a philosopher who wrote a book on that. His name's Thomas Hobbes. The book's called Leviathan. And he wrote about what Elsa describes as no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. He says, Elsa, this is the sort of life that you can expect in that world. He says, your life will be nasty, brutish, and short. Nasty, brutish, and short. You see, these sort of expectations, commandments, they're, they're actually an act of grace. It's an act of moral clarity. God telling us what to do is an act of grace. Have you ever been in a relationship, and I'm sure you have, uh, maybe it's with your parents or with an employer or a professor, where there are no communicated expectations, but there are actually a lot of expectations, and you just stumble on them. Like, what does it feel like to be in that sort of situation? It's anxious. It's like it's, it's hard to be okay with yourself in that situation because you're constantly trying to figure out what are the expectations. And see, God is so merciful in giving us expectations and showing us this is the good life. This is the good life. So back to the original point, we're to be people who are changed by grace. And there are just kind of two things that I want to point out here. Uh, the first is the context of the commandments. The context. So I just want to point us back to what we just talked about, the first two verses of the commandments. A lot of times when we think about the Ten Commandments, we just think of like the you shall, you shall not, but they're never meant to be read apart from their context. And their context is this. It's God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But even more than that, their context is like the entirety of the Bible up to this point. Like the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, it's all a story of God pursuing and loving his people. And he doesn't tell them what they're supposed to do until like 60 some odd chapters in. You see, in the Bible, uh, this is a, a thing I was taught in seminary is really helpful. Indicatives always precede imperatives. Indicatives always precede imperatives. What does that mean? What that means that in the Bible, language about who you are or what has been done for you always, always, always comes before what you must do. Always. You see, who you are is a gift of grace. And what you do is a response to that grace that is also empowered by that grace. Uh, an author that I, I really like says it like this. He says, obedience flows from grace. It does not buy it. The exodus precedes Sinai. Think about it this way. God is speaking with moral clarity in the Ten Commandments. He's saying these are the expectations, but he's already rescued the people. You see, the people know God as Savior before they know him as King. God saves before he has requirements. So that's the context of the commandments. But I also want to look at just kind of the goal of the commandments. Uh, the goal of the commandments is basically this. It's that we would translate God's grace into action. That we would translate God's grace into action. And what I mean by that in short is we're to be a people who are changed by grace into people who love God and love neighbor. Uh, and if you've 
ever interacted with the Ten Commandments, uh, people sometimes refer to two tables of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first one being about the love of God, and the second one being about the love of others. So the first four commandments, broadly, they show us what it means to love God. So just in summary, loving God means to not have any gods before him. It means to resist idolatry. It means to not take his name in vain, to speak and honor his name with reverence. It means to rest in imitation of him. This is like a shorthand summary for what it means to love God, and then also to love neighbor. Loving your neighbor means honoring your parents. It means not murdering, but also positively protecting human life. It means uh, to not commit adultery, but positively to embody sexual integrity. It means uh, to not steal. It means to tell the truth. It means to not covet. Uh, And I don't have time to really go in what all of those mean. If you want to know what those mean, uh, there's lots of good resources. But the number one that I would point you to would be the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus uh, tells kind of what these mean in in the book of Matthew. So look that up. That's a a great way to kind of unpack all those. But broadly speaking, this is what the goal of the Ten Commandments are. they're, They're to make us love God and love others more. But how does God's grace enable us to be people like this more and more? How can we grow more and more of our love of God and neighbor? Uh, When I was in uh, college and then early on after college, um, I had what I would like to call bachelor decor in every uh, place that I lived. Uh, What I mean by that is I had a uh, Dale Earnhardt flag. I know who Dale Earnhardt is, NASCAR. I had a Dale Earnhardt flag on my wall uh, that had been with me since childhood. Uh, I had a Boondock Saints poster because I was really into film. Um, I had the, uh, the Ron Swanson Pyramid of Greatness on my wall. And uh, the crown jewel was this wicker lamp that I had had in my room since I was like four. And man, my affection for this wicker lamp was crazy. Like, I loved this wicker lamp. Like, I, oh man, I was so excited about it. Uh, but now, if you would go into my house, uh, if you were to look for any of these things, you would not find them. You wouldn't find them at all. Instead, what you would find, you would find calligraphy all over the place. Uh, you would find a gallery wall or two. You would find accent rugs. Uh, it looks like Pinterest has exploded inside my house. What happened? What happened? I got married to Molly. See, marriage to Molly changed my opinions on this over time. I loved that Dale Earnhardt flag. I loved that wicker lamp. But now, like, truly, honestly, I do not want to put them up anywhere. Right? It's because of Molly's love and Molly's kindness. It changed me. You see, if this is true of human grace, if this is true of human kindness, how much more is it true of God's grace? See, his grace changes us more and more into a people who love God and love neighbor. Um, Lauren, if you could click over to the next slide for me. I have a a verse here I want us to read. It's from Titus 2, written by uh, the Apostle Paul. 
It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, the grace of God isn't just uh, you're okay where you are, you're loved exactly where you are. It absolutely is that. But the grace of God is also transformation. It changes us. When you encounter a love that significant and that great, you cannot help but change. It's inevitable. It's irresistible. It will change you. So how do we know if we're changing by grace? How do we know if this is working in our hearts and working in our lives? Um, So imagine with me, um, later tonight, maybe this weekend, uh, you go to a party. um, And, you know, it's a bumping party, playing the new Bieber album. It's pretty awesome. You have a drink or two. Uh, uh, two drinks becomes three, which becomes four, um, which by the time it gets to Peaches on Justin Bieber's album, you would have had eight drinks, had a lot of drinks. Um, And then you wake up the next morning on your friend's couch, terribly hungover, not knowing what to do with yourself. You have no memory of what happened. You come out of the, you, you wake up, you come out of the couch, and then your friend's like, dude, you like totally hooked up with some random girl last night, right? Okay, what what do you do in that situation? How do you respond in that situation? Because that sort of action, right? Like when we look at the law of God, I think it's, it's pretty obvious what that is. That's sin. That's missing the mark. It's not doing what is right. But how do you respond in that situation when you've sinned? How do you respond when you fall flat on your face? And have failed. I think many of us might respond kind of by doubling down, right? You wake up the next morning, you realize you've done something horrible, and you go like kind of CrossFit on your spirituality. You're like, I've got to start going to church. I'm going to start a Bible reading plan. I'm never ever going to look at a person of the opposite sex ever again. I'm never going to touch alcohol again. It's icky. I'm going to do Exodus 90. Right? You feel like you have to make it up to God. You feel like you have to make it up to God. You see, but if you're rooted in grace and if you're being changed by grace, what do you do in a situation like that? You run to Jesus. You run to him. You confess your sin to him and to others. You're clothed in his perfection. You know that that can't change no matter what you've done. You know that you can't put yourself together. Only he can. And see, you don't let, you, you, you might be sad about what you've done. You should be. But see, you have the freedom if you're rooted in grace, if you're clothed in the perfection of Jesus, you have the freedom to step back and ask, why did I do that? Why did I do that in the first place? And see, if you're not rooted in grace, you're so ashamed that you couldn't do that because you have to make it up to God. I have to make it up. Oh, I just can't be seen as a sinner. And can I just say that that is way too small of an understanding of our sin? And it's not nearly as big of a picture of God's grace that we need to have. 
You see, grace enables and requires change. Uh, my wife and I, Molly, have been doing uh, Movie Monday recently, which has been really fun. Uh, which So, uh, Enneagram Talk, I'm a nine, she's a two, which means that we never speak up for what we want. So, a challenge for us has been, um, you have to pick a movie and you cannot consult the other person. You just pick it, you start it, and there's no discussion. Um, and Molly picked the movie uh, Les Mis recently, uh, which was the first time I had seen it, um, and it was fantastic. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, it tells uh, the story of a guy named Jean Valjean, or Prisoner uh, 24601, who went to a French prison or, or kind of labor camp uh, because he stole bread to feed someone in his family. And so he went for a couple years, and then he tried to escape, and then he ended up getting thrown back in the labor camp, and he ended up staying there for 19 years. And throughout this whole time staying there, he's being antagonized uh, by this other main character, but he develops this bitter view of the world. The world has been so cruel to him. He's in this labor camp for, for trying to steal bread out of necessity. He has this, this dark view of the world, and he's finally released from prison. And he goes around and kind of has this bitter view of the world confirmed. He looks for work, and he can't find it. Uh, no one will take him in. Until finally, he's asleep uh, one night on the street, and he's taken in by a priest. And this is like the first kindness that he's ever experienced. He gets to go sleep inside in, in the warm. But what, how does he respond to that? See, he has this bitter view of the world that he has to take everything. He's not going to be given anything. So he steals the priest's valuable silverware. He steals it and, and goes away before the sun comes up. But inevitably, he's caught by the police and he's brought back to the priest. He's brought back to the priest and, and he knows, Valjean knows that if the priest says he stole that, then he is going to be sent back to the labor camp, or even worse, he might be killed. Like, he is condemned, he did it, he is caught red-handed. And how does the priest respond? He covers for him. He says to the police officers, he's like, oh no, those things were given as a gift. In fact, he forgot to take these other things. And he gives him more. You see, the priest took the, he took the penalty of Valjean's sin on himself. He became poor so that he might become rich. And see, this act of grace, it confronts Jean Valjean. It confronts him, and it makes him change. You see, his bitterness melts. He turns into an honest man who loves God and loves neighbor. And friends, this is what Jesus has done for us all. This is what Jesus has done. He became poor so that we might become rich. See, we fail to love God and neighbor. When we look at these commandments, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't measure up. We don't measure up. But Jesus gives us an immeasurable gift. Jesus lived a perfect life of love of God and neighbor. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the Ten Commandments. He is the definition of God's grace and action. But though he was completely in the right, he chose to take the penalty for our failure to love. He took the penalty for our self-centeredness and our lack of love for God and for neighbor. And when we place our faith in him, 
like Jean Valjean, we receive a gift. And it's a gift that changes us. It's a gift that will change you. See, when we look to Jesus' death, our bitter hearts are melted. One hymn that I love phrases it this way. It says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So I don't know where you are tonight. Uh, Some of us might be here tonight burned out, burned out uh, just in life, burned out on Christianity. Some of us might be questioning everything, uh, whether you're raised in the church or not. Uh, You might just be thinking, do I really even believe this mess? Some of us might be here doing well, thinking that we're growing. Others of us might be here, uh, and if we're honest with ourselves, we've never been in a worse spot with our relationship with God. See, I think what we all need, no matter where you are, is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and see the king who laid aside his crown so that we could be with him. Look to Jesus who became poor for love's sake so that we might become rich. Look to Jesus and be rooted in his grace. Look to Jesus and be transformed by his grace. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that um, you speak with clarity, Lord, that you desire for us to be a people who are rooted in your grace. Um, I just know, even as I'm speaking on this, that there are so many other things that my heart is rooted in. There's so many other things that I look to um, to tell me that I'm okay. And Lord, I know my friends here uh, think the same thing. Lord, I pray that you would um, just show us that you are better. Or will you show us that you're better, that you're kinder? Lord, that you are gentler with us than all of the things that we look to? And Lord, I pray that you would change us. Change us into people who love you. Change us into people who love our neighbor. Lord, you have called your church to be a light to the nations. And Lord, uh, if we're honest, so much of our own works are darkness. But Lord, you are the light of the world. And when we look to you, we are changed. So we help us, Lord, to look to you. We help us, even if we're cynical, to look to you. We help us, even if we're tired, to look to you. Lord, meet us here. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, and so we're going to uh, respond here by singing the doxology.